News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I think a lot of us are looking down the road to doing a little traveling, maybe changing the scenery in the next few months, whether it's somewhere else in BC or later on in Canada, or maybe outside of Canada by the end of the year. It just it gives us something to look forward to, right? But the question remains, is travel going to be the same as we remember? Joining us now for more on that is Natalie Predia TV travel and lifestyle expert. Natalie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Have things changed when it comes to travel? Is it going to be what we still remember? I think we're going to get there eventually. So, I mean, right now, if you look at um, prices on uh, for Canadian airlines, which has have historically been very high to travel within the country, you can fly from Vancouver to Toronto, Vancouver to Montreal for under $200 right now. But, of course, um, in the... Uh, uh, but of course, in the um, travel space, uh, we we are not supposed to be traveling right now, right? We are only looking at uh, essential travel only. Um, so, keeping that in mind, <laughs> uh, it's a good time to look ahead when it comes to to flying across the country, to traveling within BC. But there are lots of things that we should think about ahead of time before booking those getaways. Okay, like what things do we need to think about? Because I wonder, have the, have the rules changed? I mean, with all the refunds and all the problems that they had over the past year, are airlines more flexible? Are they more forgiving now? So, you know what, right now they are. Right now, you know, Air Canada had that massive refund um, and they are being able to offer uh, refunds to all of their, uh, all of their um, guests that had to cancel flights. Same with some of the other airlines that are going to be able to offer refunds. Um, and right now, when booking flights, yes, refunds are available. You can also opt for, um, for some travel credit. But when you're booking anything now, I would always look at cancellation policies. This, I'm talking Airbnbs, um, VRBO, cottages, anything that you're booking. I would make sure that you have a solid cancellation um, policy, but also a solid um, insurance policy. So if you're looking at booking a vacation rental, you should always go through the platform. So Airbnb has a, has a specific platform that you should go through because once you start communicating outside of those platforms, you lose some of the insurance benefits. So let's say, you know, you, you find a cottage that you want to go to within BC. When you start having that conversation, um, you know, by text, you're no longer on Airbnb. All of those insurance uh, policies that you have are no longer valid. So when, whatever you're booking, make sure that, uh, that those um, specifications have been set ahead of right. time. Because that's tricky, right? Because I think what I'll, my impression was, and I'm sure this is the case for quite a few people, is that given the way things were over the past year, that you know these, these cancellation policies have become more flexible, but they, that may change on a dime on us. Oh, absolutely. And that's the issue. I mean, right now it is very flexible, but a lot of these things, travel is based on demand. So right now, airlines um, and vacation rentals to the tourism industry is trying to entice people back after, um, you know, a year and a half of, of having nothing. They're saying, you know, come on back. We'll give you these cancellation um, rentals. Uh, these cancellation policies, Expedia has a great one as well. Um, but yeah, it, when demand is there, 
uh, the prices will go up. The policies will change. We've already seen that in the States. You know, they're traveling a lot down there. Um, and the flights, which started off really cheap, are already going up just because the demand is there. And the tourism industry is trying to make their dollars back. Um, so it's something to keep an eye on. And you're right. It could change on a dime. Um, and that's the thing with this pan- with the pandemic. You know, we hope we're on the way out with all of our vaccinations. But we just don't know, which is why you really want to make sure that you've looked into the small print so you're ready for every eventuality. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to be excited about the fact that, okay, this summer, maybe things are going to open up. We're going to be able um, to to go outside and, and, you know, plan some time away. But, you know, let's just be a little bit cautious. If if the past has taught us anything, it's that um, we need to be prepared for everything right. and anything. <laughs> you know what? That's exactly what I was thinking too. I was like, we used to just assume that, oh, well, what could possibly happen? And now we know yeah. anything could happen. So anything could happen. Read yes, those policies. Yes. Yes, exactly. Read the small print. All right, Natalie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Natalie Pretty, who's a TV travel and lifestyle expert. That is great advice because I know a lot of you out there are looking and making travel plans, you know, thinking, and, you know, before you wouldn't have probably maybe checked the cancellation. I know Claire Newell is always honest about travel insurance and all of that. And I think a lot of times you just didn't because you thought, no, no, I'm going to go. Could possibly happen. We now know anything could happen. So cancellation policies, refund policies, all of that. Super important as you are planning now your travel. I would love to hear about any trips that you have got going. Like, where are you planning to go? Not in the next month or two, obviously. We can go perhaps somewhere in Canada later this summer. Maybe we can go somewhere else, you know, after September. We'll see how it goes. But I know people are thinking about it. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't even begin to tell you how much I love that song. It is so great. Our Raji Sohal is with us. Raji, you a fan? Uh, I am. I know I'm not as much of a fan as you are, because <laughs> I knew you were going to say that that was a tune. <laughs> what? Oh, maybe it's the age difference, because maybe. that was really, like, that. come on, who doesn't love David Lee Roth, right? <laughs> um. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, what are we talking about this morning? Simi, I keep reading about vintage and secondhand clothing being on the rise everywhere, not just here, but around the world. And, you know, I have always shopped vintage. I've always shopped secondhand, Um, not really for the price because prices are actually really high now for anything that's actually vintage. That's something you're going to make fun of me for this, but something that's from the 90s and earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to ask you, what is the difference between vintage and secondhand? Well, if you go to, say, for example, a Salvation Army or Value Village now, it's actually hard to find anything that's genuinely, um, you know, from the 80s. And if it is, that's considered a real gem or something that's um, not made overseas. Like it used to be that you could find tags that said made in Canada even. I have a bunch of cool items I got from uh, Value Village back in the day. And, you know, they're from Sears and they're made in Canada. They're made in uh, Toronto or in um, out here actually, even in BC. So yeah, this trend has been accelerated by the pandemic because people are clearing their closets and you know, taking things to the secondhand shops and, and it's all circulating over and over again. 
And this has also resulted in Etsy, which I buy a bunch of stuff off of regularly, mm-hmm. acquiring Depop, which is a fashion resale marketplace that's super popular with people under 26. Um, so Gen that's so Z-ers. specific. That's so under 26. But you know, I have noticed this. I'm listening to you talk and I thought I have noticed this because I have a, a daughter who's 24 who loves to dig deep into my closet. And she has taken to wearing some of the stuff that I have, like from my high school days. And in particular, I have this sweatshirt that was like a Looney Tunes sweatshirt. But it It already sounds like a classic. Right? It was embroidered. And I remember buying it. It was a lot of money. And I had saved up money to buy it. Like this would have been back in the mid to late 80s. I think it cost me $50 at the time. That would have been a lot then. It was. It was. And I think my mother thought I was crazy because I had spent $50 (laughs) on this. It was a sweatshirt. Uh, but it was embroidered with all the Looney Tunes on it. Well, she wears it all the time. That thing is more than 30, it's like 30, 35 years old now. Still so looks great. Kept it. Well, it's a beautiful sweatshirt. Like it was just, it's gorgeous. Like you'll never see another sweatshirt like that again. I think I yeah. even bought it at the time when it was like a Warner Brothers store. I was on a trip somewhere and I thought, oh, I got to have this sweatshirt. And I, you know, pooled money for it. Um, and so, yeah, she wear, it's still in great shape. And I always think that though, when I see that sweatshirt that I think, I remember how much I thought that sweatshirt was, but look how long it has lasted. Yeah, that's not one that you want to send to Salvation Army. Like, I hope she hangs on to it for a while, too. Um, this this trend of people, like, you know, getting old pieces, they're not uh, getting them for cheap. Like, they're reselling on sites like Poshmark, ThreadUp, Vinted, and they're selling for a lot. Etsy was kind of a place, a marketplace, where at First, everything was highly curated, and then now it's just a free-for-all. In fact, there's a site, I don't know if it's still active, but I used to look at it all the time for laughs, called Regretsy. And it was just like the worst pieces that people hoped others would buy from them. Um, But Depop is, is like wow, it's a lens into where fashion is going, like really like cool handmade stuff, people upcycling old clothes into new things. And I don't know if this kind of thing makes a dent in sustainability in terms of keeping our environment free of excessive material, but I mean, it's something. And it's also like a creative outlet for people too, right? It is fascinating to see what people can come up with, right? For all the old stuff you've got buried in your closet. I absolutely, yeah. This is going to inspire me to go home and maybe dig a little bit deeper. I know I've got more stuff in there because I did save a lot of stuff from you know back in those days because I was... As a teenager, you're so attached to those things that you had to save up to buy, you know, when you had your first job. And I oh, thought, yeah. yeah. And weren't you in high school in like the, well, you would have had some gems from the 90s, I'm guessing, too. Oh, you're so sweet. I, I like how you were careful there before you were trying to pick what year you were talking about. <laughs> I was I was in junior high school, so it would have been, I started grade eight in 1984. So I graduated high school in 1989. So all my stuff would be from the 80s. From the 80s. I okay. know. Classic stuff, right? Yes. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been a week now since the story broke of the 215 children found in the unmarked burial site on the grounds of the Kamloops Residential School. During that time, we've heard more and more stories of abuse and survival and also inspiration. Look at all the ways that children in our schools have found ways to pay tribute and to learn about the situation. And in one district in particular, they have been guided by our next guest. It's Brad Baker. Brad is the District Administrator for Indigenous Education in the North Vancouver School District and joins us this morning. Brad, thank you for being here. 
Thank you for having me this morning. I really appreciate being here. Well, I was reading about some of the efforts that you have been doing over in North Vancouver. How has the last week been for you, not just with the news breaking, but also seeing the way children in particular have responded? Yeah, I think the, the last week uh, since we, re- we heard the news of, of the tragic loss of the 215 children, uh, it's been a trying and hardened week for, for, for many of, of the Indigenous staff in our district. But we've also seen the lights of hope with uh, the role that children are playing in honouring uh, the lost children through the, the different activities within the schools uh, of, of, of honouring and recognising the, the history of our country. And how have you been able to guide them? Like, what are your suggestions when the schools ask you for some advice on this? Yeah, we, we got our team together last weekend uh, and we, we developed uh, an extensive resource list to share with teachers, but also to share with parents of, of how to have conversations, age-appropriate conversations around the impacts and uh, of the Indian residential schools. And uh, I think the big thing for us is we, we can no longer hide from the truth of what happened in Indian residential schools. And so... We've provided guidelines for teachers and parents to talk to their children about this. And they've also been doing some tributes as well, haven't they? Yeah, the tributes have been uh, very emotional to, to witness uh, for myself and for, for other members of the Indigenous Education Team, but also community members. Because I think the tributes show the, the compassion and empathy that, that, that young children and teachers have uh, towards the 215 children, but also towards uh, Indigenous peoples of this country. And so what have you suggested to them? What are some of the ways that children can get involved and talk about this and show tribute? Yeah, I think one thing that we've, we've done this week, as most other school districts have, is, is, to, is to, to wear orange as much as possible to, to symbolize and recognize uh, uh, Indian residential schools, but also to, to create visuals at their school sites, uh, either, you know, pinning 215 ribbons on the school fence or or placing 215 uh, empty chairs on a playing field like one elementary school did uh, to, to recognize the children. I think part of uh, the, the visual representation we want children to continue to do is because the visual representation allows the dialogue to continue to happen. Right, and that, it just, as you say, it's so visual. Brad, when kids talk to you, like, how do you explain this to them? Well, I think the, I had a conversation with my... Uh, my grandson last night, who is who's seven years old, and he he lives on uh, in the in the Nanaimo. And I asked him, "Hey, have you learned about what have you done in school this week about the Kamloops school?" And his first reaction statement to me was, "That the school where the children died." And so that we kind of talked uh, about how uh, the children were allowed to go home to their parents. They they had to live away from home, and then they, when they were sick, they weren't allowed to be hugged or loved by their parents. And so. It's that conversation that we want our teachers and parents to have. And because our kids, we have to give uh, more credit to our kids. They want to know and they want to talk about it. That's what I was wondering, too, because parents might think that, oh, you know, their child is too young. Or, But make no mistake, I think a lot of kids are hearing about this. Yeah, without a doubt. I think the, the children are well aware of, of, of what is going on right now. And I think for, for us as a collective responsibility of, of Canadians is to continue that dialogue because if we have children asking us questions of what happened in the Indian residential schools, we have to be able to answer those questions and not shy, shy away from the tough conversations. Is this part of the regular work that you do, Brad, with the North Vancouver School District, or is this something that you have taken up because of what we have learned? 
No, it's it's part of the regular work of uh, of the of the North Vancouver School District and myself and my team and and our broader team. Uh, we're fortunate in North Vancouver where we have a strong uh, learning services division and, and uh, all of our teachers and our and our and our executive. We really have made a conscious effort to bring the true history into our classrooms and. We still have a long way to go. We know that, but I think it's been part of our fabric as a school district for the last six or seven years. And does every district have something like this? Is this a unique program? No, no, it's not a unique program. I think uh, we we meet we the district leads meet on a regular basis, and this is all part of the conversation where we're trying to to influence the the system even more and more with Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous ways of knowing, and including the true teachings of the Indian residential school system. And it's just a matter of the more uh, allies we bring in within the fold, the more the information is going to get out there. Yeah, how can we keep this up then, Brad? This has been a real learning week, I think, right? For a lot of people, clearly it is top of mind. How can we make sure that discussion continues? Yeah, that's that's the, the, the main, that is so important for this discussion to continue next month, next year, five years, 10 years down the road. I think part of uh, the work that all of us have as, as Canadian citizens to continue this dialogue is to read the Truth and Reconciliation 94 Calls to Action, understand the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and know the First Nations where you you reside on, the rights holders of this province, because if uh, we have the opportunity to change history here with, at this moment of time, and I think it's a collective responsibility for all of us to do that. That's a good way to put it. Brad, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me this morning. That's Brad Baker. He's the District Administrator for Indigenous Education in the North Vancouver School District. And that's, I think he put it so, so well. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, the federal government is promising a host of new commitments, such as rolling out public education campaigns, increasing funding to stop human trafficking. And these are to try and help Indigenous women facing gender-based violence, health inequalities, and systemic racism. So why now? Well, remember, we had the long-awaited report from the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And there was an action plan that came with that, you know, two years ago. And now the federal government is talking about moving on that action plan. But the question is, does all of this go far enough? So joining us now is Naomi Sayers, an Indigenous feminist and lawyer. Naomi, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. What did you think about that announcement yesterday? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's they waited a pretty significantly long time in terms of to announce things that didn't need it the time. Like all of the things that they have announced are has been established before and it just seems like it's another extension of the uh you know, the liberal party platform that, right. you know, next time elections will come around, they'll say, like, what we did, we still have to continue to do the work. Right. What do you think they should have done? What would you have liked to have heard yesterday? Yeah, so, you know, they offered money. Um, you know, you don't need to wait a whole two years to offer money. <laughs> um, it's well established elsewhere and, and from other inquiries that you know, uh, Indigenous people and particularly Indigenous women and girls um, experience vulnerability and marginalization. Um, So, you know, there's no commitment to safe housing. There's no commitment to uh, services that would help support them. Um, 
on on a range of issues from you know uh, accessing non-judgmental healthcare or uh, just ask, uh, accessing, say, for example, uh, non-judgmental counseling and what right. have you. Because that's the thing. We know about the problems, right? We have lots of stories where this is happening to people time and time again, but we don't have specifics on the programs that can deal with this. Yeah, and I guess that's sort of like the, um, you know, the, the other side of the, the position is that, you know, you let the communities implement that. But at the same time, the communities have been implementing it without a whole lot of room for budgeting and, and operations in terms of that. So, you know, talk to them, ask them what they need, and they will most likely tell you um, we need more funding. And so you, you don't need to wait two years to do that, right? Well, exactly. But now it's almost like, you know, striking while the iron is hot. This is in the news. Everybody is talking about it. Everybody's thinking about it. So, Naomi, what, like, you give them some specifics then. If they were going to put some money into something, what should they be putting money into? Yeah, so like I said uh, earlier, just briefly, like, you know, safe housing. Um, uh, one of the core issues that um, creates vulnerability, marginalization, indigenous women, girls, and lives, and two-spirit folks is uh, this, uh, lack of safe housing, like so, in their community, off the community, um, and you know, if you if you go back to the basics, um, what can help make your day better is you know just being able to go to go to bed in a warm in a warm house in a, in a clean bed. Oh, something that so many people just take for granted, right? Yes. <laughs> And what about working, you know, about addressing this issue in healthcare? We've had too many stories recently of Indigenous people who just get treated so poorly in the healthcare system. Yeah, so um, I think the issue lies with, um, you know, just these, the racism has gone unchecked for a really long time. And I don't think that um, it's it's going to go away within like a year or so it will take a lot of resources it will take a lot of um coming together and hospitals as you know are big institutions who are resistant to change right um so they have to be also real with themselves um and understand that they are part of the problem now, one of the things that they talked about yesterday was they were um, talking about a public education campaign. Is that what we need right now? I'm not sure if Indigenous people need that public education campaign. Perhaps maybe other people do, but at the same time, um, they're not. there's not a lot of education around what uh, causes these issues, right? So you have a lot of racism that often breeds from these public education campaigns. So you say, oh, yes, you know, we have this many Indigenous missing and murdered Indigenous girls. Um, here's how we can support them. But a lot of times you see the public commentary on that says, well, you know, they're just, um, and I, I don't repeat these, and I don't mean any offense when I say these from coming from my mouth, but a lot of the times public say, well, they're just drunks and drug addicts and uh, prostitutes. And, you know, so I don't understand why why they just can't, you know, pull up their boots, pull right. up by the bootstraps and get, get to work, right? So you, you see a lot of those things, right? So there's a lot of racism that um, Canadians um, and institutions will have to just 
come to terms with that they are part of the problem. No, I mean, that's such a good point. Like, where is that public education campaign needed? Is it needed in the Indigenous community or is it needed outside the Indigenous community? And you're right, you, I would argue outside the Indigenous community. Yeah, yeah. So, that is a good point, Naomi. Listen, thanks so much for your time on that. No worries. Thank you for having me. As Naomi Sayers, an Indigenous lawyer, talking about some of the recommendations made by the federal government yesterday, their action plan. But as Naomi said, what, do we need two years for some of the stuff that they announced yesterday? Probably not. Could have been announced easily two years ago. Still a long way to go on that. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, last month was a tough one in the job market, right? Because right across the country, you had pandemic restrictions and closures, waiting for the day for things to reopen. We're seeing a bit of that this month, but we're not going to see that for weeks yet when it comes to the jobs numbers. So let's find out what last month did look like. The latest jobs numbers out this morning from Statistics Canada. Joining us now for more on this is Ravi Kailan, our BC Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Thanks for being back with us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. So how did BC do? Well, uh, you know, as you uh, highlighted in the opening of your uh, of the segment, uh, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, the Sabre Force survey was done uh, right in the middle of our circuit breaker uh, and the restrictions that we had to put in place. Uh, and so we saw about uh, 23,000 loss of part-time jobs, but we gained uh, 21,000 uh, full-time jobs. And so uh, a small shift from the, the previous month, but the, the thing that keeps us, uh, the thing that's making me very optimistic about where we are is we are at 99% of pre-pandemic employment levels here in BC, and, and we have the highest job recovery rate in the entire country. So, um, you know, I, I'm feeling as the vaccinations are going up and cases are coming down, I'm feeling very hopeful about uh, a strong economic recovery. Where do you think we are still a little weak? Where you hope to see a bigger rebound next month, perhaps? Well, it's uh, no surprise to me. Uh, it's uh, hospitality and tourism uh, continue to still be uh, challenged, uh, and and, and a, a little bit in the personal service sectors. But again, as the restart plan that was announced last week has given people a lot more confidence. We've heard from employers who are starting to hire up real quick because they expect with the timelines to see uh, people traveling, certainly people traveling domestically, movie theaters potentially opening up, banquet halls opening up. Uh, And so there is a bit of a rush to find employees. In fact, we're starting to hear from some employers that they're having a tough time finding people. And and so, uh, you know, we do feel good about where things are going. And again, very optimistic about uh, uh, where we'll be in uh, the next month and months going ahead. Right. Like the next couple of months, don't you think, are going to be very critical, though, because a lot of the supports that got, that businesses have been counting on are slowly going to start to be phased out. Is that a concern? Well, the uh, federal government extended their um, Canada wage subsidy program to the end of September. And uh, we have the small and medium sized uh, recovery grant program. Of course, that's a, a direct uh, injection of, of, of money and not a loan. But there is a whole host of supports that will remain uh, for the rest of the year. You know, we have the uh, tax credits for employers to hire and rehire. We have a PST exemption for uh, businesses buying new machinery to get their businesses ready. Uh, and of course, a liquor price uh, reduction of 25% for uh, pubs and restaurants, that's been made permanent going forward. So a lot of measures are staying uh, throughout the year for businesses uh, that are coming out of this. Right. And I understand you've got an announcement coming up this morning on that small and medium business recovery grant. 
Well, we've, uh, from the beginning, been adjusting that program to ensure that it works for businesses. Uh, and, uh, and certainly we had some uh, bumps uh, in the early days of creating that program. Uh, but what we've seen since is very strong uptake in applications. Uh, you know, we were projecting to be able to support uh, 15,000 uh, businesses because the budget was about $300 million. And, uh, and we're well over that. And uh, again, Premier was clear from the beginning, we're going to continue to support businesses uh, during this uh, difficult time. And I'll have more to say on that later today. Okay, so what is the focus here? Like, are we talking about specific industries, do you think, that are going to need more support? Or is this going to be open to all businesses? This is open to all businesses. You know, when we first structured the program, it was structured in a way to, uh, to support the ones who were the hardest hit. Uh, and once we had uh, those businesses in the in the queue and were able to support them, we expanded it to kind of the next tier of businesses that were also still struggling. And so we're continuing to uh, support those that are, are challenged. But we also have a lot of money uh, injected into our economy to support businesses that are pivoting to create new opportunities. You know, we have manufacturing grants. Uh, we have uh, tech-related grants for businesses that are creating new products. Uh, trying to get into new markets because it's not just about getting through. We're also starting to position for what does a really strong economic recovery in the years ahead uh, look like? And, and that work has already started. Yeah, what does that look like? Well, it's uh, first off, I think, um, you know, while we're struggling uh, and not having international tourism here, I think it's going to be a lot of uh, folks uh, supported by domestic tourism. Great opportunities there. But we have a whole host of opportunities for our economy going forward. Our um, life science sector continues to uh, grow at a faster pace than any other in, in the country. Uh, we're seeing uh, strong opportunities with agri-tech. Uh, we're seeing strong opportunities with our clean tech and our climate change solutions that we're producing here in British Columbia. So there is a lot to be optimistic and hopeful for in BC. And, and I'm, I'm certainly feeling uh, really positive about uh, the days ahead. You mentioned uh, the border situation here too. Like obviously BC can't really get fully up and running until that is taken care of. Is there any update on that? What have the discussions been like? Well, the uh, premier has been working with uh, other uh, premiers uh, and the prime minister on what that may look like. Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, if you look at our vaccination rates uh, and we're well over 72% now uh, and we compare them to Washington state, which is doing better than other jurisdictions, but I believe they're in the 60s. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I don't think the U.S. is moving along in their vaccination plans at the rate that, um, that many would feel comfortable with. But we want to ensure that, uh, you know, that Americans certainly and others can come to B.C. when it's safe to do so. Um, but we're not there yet. Um, but the federal government has this jurisdiction and, uh, and they'll have to tell us uh, what they're doing and what their plans are certainly hoping very soon. Yeah. Are you worried a little bit that we're getting kind of left behind on this when you see other countries opening up to certain areas where it just seems like other countries are, are moving along on this? Well, it's again, uh, you know, when we're sitting in BC with 72% uh, uh, vaccination rate, we're in a different boat than perhaps other provinces uh, that maybe don't have as high vaccination rate. And I appreciate the federal government has to have a across Canada approach, but they are having conversations uh, internally, certainly, about what the options are. Uh, and, you know, I think 
just as we announced a restart plan last week, and it gave uh, both people and businesses some certainty. I think there's there's certainly pressure on the federal government to give some levels of certainty or metrics that they're going to use in their decision-making so that people can plan their lives and businesses can plan accordingly. All right, we'll see what happens. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Ravi Kailan, BC Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation, talking about the latest jobs numbers out across Canada this morning for BC. It's kind of more of the same, right? And that is because these stats were taken from the middle of our circuit breaker restrictions that we had going on. Now, obviously, next month, I think we'll probably see a difference as a lot of people, restaurants, you know, the hospitality industry got back to work. But we're close to recovering all the jobs that we lost before the pandemic, but we are not there yet. This is Mornings with Simi. Fair to say our producer Greg has been waiting a long time just to be able to play that X-Files music for us because we are talking about UFOs this morning. There has been a hotly anticipated report out, a task force that was assigned by the U.S. government to take a look at this issue, came out with their report this morning, as a matter of fact, and they said they have found no evidence that objects came from outer space or were part of some secret U.S. program. However, They still say more than 120 cases that they investigated remain unexplained. Raji Sohal is with us this morning. Raji, this is such a hot topic these days. It is, Simi. I thought it was just me. And then I started seeing articles, including in the New York Times yesterday, that say things like, why are we all talking about UFOs right now? Right. And I love sci-fi. I love Ray Bradbury. I loved The X-Files. I I love all that stuff. Uh, but it's deeply entrenched in the part of my brain where I associate things with fiction. So um, I wanted to investigate them, them this. Them fighting words, Raji, for a lot of people. Oh, I know. You know, the government has made some statements that there are things that fighter pilots see that they can't explain. And then people have extrapolated from that to mean, okay, obviously that means we're not alone and we are doomed because alien aircraft and the government are all coming for us at once. And then there's the other people (laughs) on the other side, like uh, someone I talked to, an associate professor and uh, Canada research chair in planetary astronomy in the Department of Physics and Astronomy, Again, scientist, my people, uh, Aaron Boley, and here's what he had to say about it. From a lot of these uh, um, uh, videos that have been released from uh, the instruments on aircraft, uh, they're seeing motions that appear to be unphysical, uh, things that uh, seem to be moving in just ways that are otherworldly, so to speak, uh, that, that would require some type of technology that uh, we just you know, don't know about. And so this is why, you know, militaries take it very seriously. Um, it is perfectly legitimate to try to understand something that you see and you don't have an explanation for. Uh, they, they want to know that for their own defense. They want to know if somebody's getting ahead of them. And, you know, generally just, you know, what else could possibly be out there? Is it uh, a threat or not? Uh, and so there's a a reasonable reason for going after this. And, you know, it's completely driven by uh, terrestrial concerns, just things here on earth. See, Raji, take it seriously, man. He (laughs) takes it seriously. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is, but he also goes on to explain that, you know, these things that we're seeing, it's all, it's all, it's all relative. Here's uh, Aaron Bully again. 
But one of the things we have to remember is that there are many different motions that are involved. We have the uh, fighter jet that's moving. You have the cameras on the fighter jet that are moving, panning, uh, rotating. Uh, and you also have uh, some object that's moving and that's all relative to some type of background. And so you can get these kind of fantastic looking motions uh, when it's really the product of having all of these motions put together in a way that's unfamiliar to us. And so you could have things that are really big and far away and things that are really small and close by look very similar. And then the way that, you know, the, the observer is moving relative to those is going to really change the, the outcome that you see. So Simi, like what he's referring to is, I'm sure you've seen them, you know, those kind of like black and white radar yes, videos and they're grainy and that you'll see something like an oval or a blob shape and it's shaking. It is easy for our imaginations to go completely wild with something like that. But Aaron Boley, he's got a reasonable explanation for all of this. And a lot of the things that are, have been published have perfectly reasonable explanations such as an aircraft that's in the distance and the camera is panning in a, in a different way, or there's a diffraction pattern, just the way the light's coming in, it creates an artifact on the camera. And then the camera rotates uh, as part of a gimbal action and it causes the artifact to appear to rotate. And so all these things can happen and you, we see that and we're like, wow, something spectacular must be happening. And it's just something very familiar in an unfamiliar context. Yeah, so Simi, we've also been hearing about more sightings recently because the pandemic activity of stargazing has taken off in the last year. So many more people are out there staring at the, the skies for hours every single night. And I talked to uh, this guy, Leron Gertzman. He's a biology student at UBC, and he does astrophotography. NASA has shared his work on their social pages. He, I thought, who better to talk to than someone who is actually staring at the stars all night? There's so many beautiful things in the night sky. And when we look up at the sky, the vast majority of what we're seeing are stars, um, stars that are located within our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, but there's other things too. And sometimes those things for stargazers are very exciting. You've got the planets, um, you've got occasionally something like a meteor streaking across the sky or every few years, perhaps there'll be a comet visible. Um, and there's a, also a lot of artificial satellites, so actually objects placed into the uh, orbit of planet Earth by people. Um, and the main thing to tell uh, if what you're looking at is a satellite is that satellites move across the sky, often fairly quickly. So Simi, things like space junks, drones, satellites, lots of stuff that, you know, is considered astrophenomena that is not, uh, not uh, UFOs. <laughs> Right. So what could we be seeing? Well, you know, the conspiracies run rampant, but I had to ask astrophysicist Boley why they persist. The galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is full of planetary systems. And so if you're looking out at a star, just any star, pick a star, you look out at it, more often than not, when you're looking at the star, it's going to have a planetary system. Now, that doesn't mean that it has planets that could host life as we know it. And even if it has a planet that in principle could host life as we know it, it doesn't mean that it has life. 
And just because it has life doesn't mean it has technologically advanced life. So you have all these things that you start adding layers that you add on top of it. But if you have about 300 billion stars, you start to wonder, well, could these rare events that give rise to the types of conversations we're having right now happen somewhere else? And so that's a legitimate question to have. Uh, and so uh, there's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is being conducted through uh, astronomical observations, radio observations, uh, looking also at possibilities of light pulsations and things like that. You know, nothing has been found, uh, but there's the, the search continues. It is easy, however, to then extrapolate from there and say, if there's something that I don't understand, there must be a fantastic explanation for it. You know what I'm well, going to take from me, that, Raji? I'm going to take the search continues. That's what I'm going to take from that. <laughs> the truth is out there. <laughs> Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you thought about food insecurity during the pandemic? Have you had to worry about where that next meal or tomorrow's meal is going to come from? It has definitely become more of a concern over the last year. Organizations like the United Way have been trying to get in there and help. So they're launching a fundraising and awareness campaign to tell people about their food security initiative that will establish what they're calling province-wide regional community hubs. So let's find out more about this now with the help of Kim Winchell, who's the Senior Director of Strategy and Operations at United Way of the Lower Mainland. Kim, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Simi, for having me. Well, what are these community like hubs and what does this look like? Sure. So a, a community food hub really is a place of connection through food. It's a place where community members uh, can come and get access to culturally appropriate food. Uh, they can get a hot meal. Uh, they can get access to food literacy program and well wellness program and a whole host of services and supports. The great thing about these hubs is it's right in community. So it's local, it's tailored to the specific community needs, um, and it's a, it's a great place for people to come together um, and support each other uh, through these trying times. Have you seen a real need for this increase over the last year? Oh, absolutely. I mean, food insecurity has always been an issue. Uh, one, about one in seven people um, struggle struggle with that. Uh, and then through the pandemic, we saw that uh, really increase. And what we really noticed was there's so many people that were relying on free community meals to meet their daily calorie intake. And we've just seen that not be available through the pandemic. So, so many people are, uh, are struggling with, with food insecurity. And those people are often um, hidden. They're your neighbors. Uh, they're your friends sometimes. And there's just so much stigma about, about food insecurity. So they don't always reach out for help. Oh, that's terrible. So they don't know where to turn because they don't want to admit that they are having trouble finding their next meal? Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of stigma around that. Um, so they don't know where to turn. And so these community food hubs are just great places for them to go, um, as I said, and, and really be a part of the community. Um, in fact, uh, when the pandemic hit, I met a mom uh, who was working, a single mom who was working two minimum wage jobs just to make ends meet. Um, and when the pandemic hit, she lost one of those those jobs. Um, so she was telling me that in order to 
put protein and fruits and vegetables on her children's um, plates, uh, she gave up her bus pass and would walk an hour and a half to work and an hour and a half home from work so that she could do that. Oh, so the, the food hub has allowed her to, to get her bus pass back and get her life back. So wow. it really is life-saving. Yeah, no kidding. How does this work? Like, does it work in conjunction with food banks? Are you? Is it separate from food banks? That's a great question. Um, so we know that food insecurity is going to take a whole host of different strategies to solve this problem. Uh, and so the food bank is one of those solutions and the community food hubs are also a solution. Um, so we need a variety of different solutions for, for people. And the food banks really are a key player in the, in the community food hubs. So when a community food hub pops up in your local neighborhood, it's a network of between 10 and 12 different organizations. Um, And the food bank's role in there is to provide food uh, to that community food hub, and they can use it for meals, uh, they can use it for hampers, uh, they can use it in their marketplaces, in their community pantries. So, So that's the role that food banks have played. Right. So this new campaign then that United Way is doing, is this going to enlarge this program? Is it going to be available in more places in B.C.? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so right now we've implemented six community food hubs that represent over 60 organizations working together. Um, and this campaign will allow us to um, expand into 14 to 16 across the lower mainland and the province. So we're really excited to be able to to do that and to support people in dignified ways. It's it's a bit of a catch twenty two though, isn't it, Kim? Because you'd rather not have to do this. You don't you don't want to have people put in this position, but you still you want to be there to help them when they are. Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely, Simeon. That's why you know the community food hub really is that place for connection. Um, and what it looks like, it does look like a community garden where people come and grow food together. Um, it looks like a. Um, uh, a food pantry. It looks like a, a marketplace where you can come and you can go into the marketplace, get the food that you need, no stigma, no lineups. Uh, and, you know, you can pay what you can if you can. So um, we're really looking at ways to make our food security system more sustainable, more healthy and more equitable. Okay, so I understand United Way needs everybody's help to make that happen. So how mm-hmm. can people pitch in? That's a great, I love that question. So there's a few different ways. Uh, One is for sure donate, uh, and you can go to our website, uh, uwm.ca forward slash food for BC. But you can also, um, as well, volunteer. Um, So our food hubs are always looking for volunteers to to drive rescued food, um, to uh, support the centers and the places where people are coming. Um, And then you can also check in on your neighbors and uh, let them know that uh, this, this place is for them in community. Oh, that's a great thing too, right? Because people might mm-hmm. not necessarily have the money to donate, but you need people hours. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And everybody has gifts and talents to give. So we're really looking forward to that. So can they volunteer for just about anything? Yes, absolutely. They can volunteer to, to drive rescued food. Uh, to uh, to one of our food hubs. They can uh, volunteer to uh, help with a community meal. Uh, they can volunteer to uh, help uh, put hampers together. So there's so many different ways that they can volunteer. And the best part is it's right in their local community. All right. So once again, then, Kim, how can people get involved? Where can they get more information on this? So they can go to our website, uwm.ca forward slash food for BC. All right. We'll make sure that people do that. Thanks so much for your time this morning. 
Thanks so much, Cindy. Have a great day. You too. That's Kim Winchell, who's the Senior Director of Strategy and Operations uh, for United Way of the Lower Mainland. They are working on the issue of food security. They've seen far too many people over the past year who need help. And as Kim pointed out, and I think it's an excellent point, sometimes people don't like to admit it. Right. Sometimes they're embarrassed to say that they they are going to have to cut back on a much needed bus pass just to be able to put a little more protein on the table or something like that. So the United Way has launched these community hubs to not just provide food, but also assistance, a little sociability, just a chance for people to connect with other people. So if you would like more information on how you can volunteer, and as Kim also said, they need people to do all sorts of different things, not just donate money, which is great if you can, uh, but also volunteer, spend some time, do some driving, do some delivering, who knows. Uh, They do need your help. So please check it out at uwlm.ca.